and welcome to Frog Flicks, the historical movie costume podcast. I'm Tristan L. Bass, your host, and I'm here with our original Broadway recording cast of Sarah and Kendra. And today we are podcasting about Wolf Hall. This is a very special podcast because this series uh, previously aired uh, earlier this year in the UK. It was produced by the BBC. And just now it is starting to air in the US on PBS, PBS Masterpiece. So we're podcasting about this. We've actually watched the, most, of, most or all of the entire series, but it's just now airing in the US. So, sorry folks, there may be spoilers. Some of the spoilers, well, duh, it's history, because the topics are the life, uh, the life of Thomas Cromwell during uh, Henry VIII's reign with Anne Boleyn. If you don't know, oh, <laughs> Anne Boleyn does not meet with a very good, uh, happy fate. Um, and so some things, you're just going to learn what happens about that. And um, other things, if you don't want spoilers, then wait for six weeks and watch this or listen to it. And um, other things, maybe costume-wise, which you may or may not uh, be as spoilery about, but what else? So, um, first, well, I just wanted to say, this is Sarah, that uh, our, our motto is, there are no spoilers in history. And also, I think our other motto is, we're not here to make friends, but... We all like you. We really do. Okay, I probably have had a cocktail. Anyways, we're going to... Yes, Kendra? Oh, I was just going to say that I think the only spoilers really would be questions of interpretation. How is something going to be presented in this show? So if you know the bare bones of Anne Boleyn and whatever, I don't think anything we talk about is going to be, oh, my God, I didn't know that was going to happen. I think it's just going to be, oh, they portrayed it that way rather than this way. So I wouldn't stress too much. If you've watched The Tudors, you probably already know most of the history. <laughs> <laughs> or not. There's a little bit of, like, um, how shall we say, artistic license in the way The Tudors approaches it versus the more historically accurate method of Walt Paul. But essentially, overall, if you've watched The Tudors, you've probably got an idea of what's going to happen. Um, and actually that matter of uh, license will come up because, of course, every single interpretation of this story or any other uh, historical story does take an amount of license, and we'll discuss that. So who would like to give a little background on this production, um, being that, again, it's a BBC production, it's come to P PBS in the U.S., um, Kendra, perhaps, or I can, if you like. Yes, Kendra. I was just going to say, it's so it's an adaptation of a historical fiction book by Hilary Mantel, uh, and it's, so far it's she's written two books. One is Wolf Hall, one is Bring Up the Bodies. Um, Wolf Hall either won or was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, which is a really important literary prize in the UK. Um, and so the key thing is that's an adaptation of a recent work of historical fiction. When I was uh, doing my um, coursework in my master's program, one of the things that the uh, one of my professors encouraged us to do was to read Wolf Hall as a good kind of cultural 
immersion exercise into 16th century Tudor life. And I always kind of thought that was a little weird at the time, but I did end up reading part of it. And, uh, and so I knew a little bit of, of how the story was being told. And I have to say, this, the book is gripping. The book is really well written. My attention span for, for fiction is very, very short. So I wasn't compelled to finish it, but now that I'm seeing it played out on the big screen, I'm actually really, really impressed with how it was written, because I, I feel like it stayed pretty faithful to the book, which had actually, in turn, stayed pretty faithful with a couple of little deviations to the history of Thomas Cromwell's life and his interactions with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. And I will say that... Um the book itself, it received, again, it received, it was up for a major prize, and you won the Booker Prize. Mm -hmm. um, the other, the, the sequel, Bringing Up the Bodies, it, they're actually part of a trilogy. There's going to be a third book. Um, it, it follows Thomas's Crom Thomas Cromwell's whole life, and uh, Mantell is taking Cromwell, at, it's, in a way, she wants to, you know, look at him both as a prism for the time, for this, you know, time point in history and also kind of um, revitalizing him, um, making, you know, seeing him as his own character and his own person and not just, you know, Henry VIII's toady or, you know, doing Henry's will, but as his own person um, in the time and, and, you know, what were his motivations and how was he, you know, doing things, why was he doing, he doing things. Um, so there's a third book that come, ends with his death, Cromwell's death. Um, his spoilers! They're all dead. Yeah. It was like 500 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so, again, they, they're all very, you know, well, crit critically praised. Um, there are some detractors, and I, I've, noted, uh, I've noticed that a few, one or two people who friends of ours, at least, and friends of the podcast and Brocklicks, who are extremely interested and well-versed in Tudor history, kind of had some pros and cons about that. So I would love to hear from people listening uh, and commenting on the blog and our Facebook and Twitter. Um, pipe up with, as you watch Wolf Hall, um, or if you have already watched it, if you're in the UK, to comment on, you know, if you read the book, how do you think it compares, and how did you like the book at all as, as well? Um, so, again, it's historical fiction. Uh, Hilary Mantel also took about, I think, five years to research uh, the, the content of her books. So there is a lot of real depth of, you know, she was really trying to go for historical detail and accuracy and who was where at what exact spot. And there's one interview that I read where she said, well, the Duke of Somerset would have been at this spot on, you know, June 4th or something like that. So, again, it's a lot of research that goes into it, and that comes out in the UC production. Which is not to say that there's not some... Uh fantasy aspects to it. I mean, given that it's a work of historical fiction, uh, there's a lot of, of course, um, <laughs> while, while the, the framework of the characters and the framework of the, the events that go on it stays very true to the timeline, which is super gratifying, um, there's a lot of uh, fictionalization of the relationships that go on between the characters, um, such as, I know we were going to bring up Mary Boleyn, um, who actually has a, quite a large role in this show, um, and in reality, she 
drops off the map almost as soon as she gets pregnant and Henry stops, you know, stooping her. Um, he basically marries her off well um, to a Carrie. I believe it was uh, one of the Carrie heirs. Um, she gets married off. She moves to the country. She just basically has this, you know, nondescript life after after she had her affair with Hit with Henry. And uh, in in the film or in the show, it's depicted quite differently. She has a very active role in it. And, yeah. Well, she was for a time one of of Anne's wait, ladies mm-hmm. waiting, and so there is at least some plausibility to that role. I, we're jumping ahead a little bit, so um, just, um, just one other thought. I think that I haven't read the book but I was reading a review today in prepping for this and I think the one thing that I got from the review that I was reading is that Hilary Mantel was very careful to do exactly what Sarah was saying where was the Duke of Somerset at this moment but she also took uh, sort of incidents that are known to have happened and sort of reinterpreted what was actually going on behind the scenes like there's a key scene of Cromwell crying and people saying, you know, historians saying it was because of this motivation and she putting a different motivation into it. So I think it's interesting because I think it applies to the TV adaptation as well. There's both this really strong desire for historical accuracy, which is so refreshing, and yet at the exact same time, this total rewrite of history in the sense of sort of like, I guess, in terms of interpretation. So... Everybody agrees this happened, that happened, but why did they happen? What was going on? What were people mo- people's motivations? That's what she's sort of redone. And I think, honestly, in, as I was watching the show, um, and I will say I've only made it four and a half episodes in. I was not able to finish the, uh, the series. Um, that So many of you... Whatever, Kendra. Kendra's flashing the loser sign at me. Um, the all of you out there, you and I have not yet seen how this all ends up coming to an end and coming to a head. Even though we know, you know, the basics that Anne Boleyn gets her head chopped off at the end. But uh, but one of the greatest things about the show actually was that. So I've I have read Alison Weir's. I've read Alison Weir's Six Wives of Henry VIII. I've read. David Starkey's Six Wives. I've read multiple accounts of all of the individual wives of Henry VIII, and I I was getting very gra- I was feeling very gratified by watching this uh, adaptation in the sense that they stayed incredibly faithful to every major thing. That when it came down to the little interactions, like the things that we necessarily wouldn't get recorded in history, like you know what a conversation that happened, say, between Cromwell and Henry. You know, we wouldn't have the exact conversation, or we wouldn't know necessarily what happened, but we get this very, like, wonderfully researched, wonderfully presented, and beautifully acted uh, interpretation of it. And I thought, as a story, it's fantastic. So so let's start by talking about some of the major characters. Um, and we'll start with Thomas Cromwell because he, it really is his story. A lot of times these are, you know, we've gotten so many movies and TV shows about Henry and about Anne. Um, Yawn. You know, over and over again, ad, ad nauseum. But this is Thomas Cromwell's story. And, and in a lot of ways, Henry and Anne are the secondary players. So let's start with him and then go through some of the other other characters. Uh, and, and feel free to throw in about their costumes and, and the settings as well. 
Well, I wanted to start a little bit talking about Thomas Cromwell. First of all, factoid, the actor Mark Rylance played uh, Anne Boleyn's father in the big budget The Other Boleyn Girl. Which oh, I thought was so yeah. when you go back and watch it, we specifically commented on his really bad hair. I mean, it's probably <laughs> period, but it's still terrible hair. So there you go. He's Anne Boleyn. Oh, he's now. so good. He's okay. so good in this role. Oh, I love the, actually, I love the casting. I have to say the uh, casting Really well done. Yeah, Sorry. But so the main thing is the accepted historical interpretation of Thomas Cromwell is that he wasn't a really nice guy. And clearly Hilary Mantel has quite a crush on Thomas Cromwell because the whole thing is a rehab of his character. He comes off as super principled, as really deep, as have, you know, as sort of caring about people you wouldn't think he would care about, all this stuff. And uh, it was just, it was weird, because for me, it flew in the face of everything I've ever read that interprets his character. And I'll agree with that, and uh, having having read Alice in Weir's Six Wives of Henry VIII like at least 20 times in my life so far, um, she really does not kind of mince words with his character, makes him into sort of the villain. Um, not necessarily the villain in the sense that, you know, he, he was the one who, who brought about the ability for Henry and Anne to wed, but also he's not, he's not very portrayed, portrayed in a very good light um, throughout his little section in, in her history of, of the entire life marriages of Henry VIII. But I will say one of the things that I really liked about Wolf Hall um, and the adaptation that is being, you know, that we're watching is that he comes across as a mercenary, but an intellectual mercenary. And I love this because they talk, they make a lot of small comments. It's not, they don't beat you over the head with the fact that, you know, he went to Italy. He stayed in Italy for a while. He was in Antwerp. He was in France. You know, he traveled around and he kind of, he kind of like went wherever the, you know, he felt the fortunes would be most you know, beneficial to him, um, talks about the fact that he fought on the French side in, uh, what was it, the war, and um, I think it was Lowlands or something like that. But, you know, it was, he's very much a mercenary character, and so when they come down to the, uh, the characterization of him as kind of this, instead of being like the shifty Machiavellian type, he's actually like, very much like taking the temperature and testing the wind direction of where things are going to go, and it's a very calculated, principled, um, emotional and and intellectual thing, which I really liked. So he's an opportunist. Okay, that puts it very succinctly. <laughs> yes, he's an opportunist, but I like intellectual mercenary. What would he but, but he's a very strategic opportunist because he's all about the chessboard. Yeah, he's a smart opportunist, and and here's the thing too that I keep wondering is that he's not and, and this. Obviously, Hilary Mantel and this this version, this adaptation, are you know showing that he's he's working the system. He's he's doing this, but he's not doing it like say Woolsey, who is doing it for prestige and for money and for you know luxury. Because Woolsey, I mean, built castles. He had stuff. He he made he he lived the high life. Um, Cromwell. Just, he didn't have palaces. He didn't have. He didn't like work it so that he could just build up his his you know uh, piles of money and castles and stuff. And and so you kind of wonder, well, you know, what's why is he doing it? 
So that was one of the pro big problems that I had with the show, is I never felt clear on Cromwell's motivations. I will say, for a long time, it seemed like he was way more committed to Woolsey than I'd ever thought, and he was all about revenging Woolsey. And I do feel like that was sort of a, I'm sorry, pathetic. We, I, I didn't buy it. That, that was his big motivation. I can see perhaps his motivation was just that he is an incredibly smart, strategic guy, and he said, you know, ooh, this is a really interesting chessboard. I can figure out, I see how this works. I want to get in there and mess with it because I know I can and I'm smart. But other than that, I was very confused about what the fuck his motivations were, and we'll get more into it in terms of different characters, but in particular, why he was all hot for Anne Boleyn and then stopped supporting Anne Boleyn was completely unclear in the TV adaptation. <laughs> I think it actually was, again, you're going with that intellectual mercenary opportunist kind of a, a characterization. He, number one, well, I will admit, the, the, the way the show starts, you see him with you know, seeking a position in Woolsey's um, household. And then the next thing you know, he's the attorney. And then I will say, at the beginning, the very first episode was confusing because it flipped back and forth between, um, you know, like two years before, a year and a half before, current time, whatever. <laughs> I hated that. That totally annoyed me, and it was mostly in that first episode. And it was like, wait, where are we? When are we? Just tell me the fucking story. Stop with the fucking flashbacks. Right. So, so uh, let me just say... Those of you watching who've just watched the first episode and you're listening to this podcast, if you're just watching it after the first episode, stick with it. Yeah. It, it goes away. It gets a little better. And, and you don't get that flipping back and forth, yeah. at least that I've noticed, in the four and a half episodes I've seen. No, it gets... It, 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 um, it, it, it catches up to real time after the first, maybe the ha first half it, it of It just the, fucks with you. Yeah, the first the first episode, it's it's very flippy back and forth. Um, and... <laughs> But where was I? Um, I was going to say that that the motivation that I felt once I, I felt the loyalty, they kind of just jumped right in with the loyalty to Woolsey um, without really like developing much about that other than he was intrigued by Woolsey. And that seems to be his motivation with Anne. He's intrigued by Anne. And then he sees an opportunity, but he also does see the opportunity to avenge Wolsey, now that we've all bought into the fact, hopefully, that he's all up Wolsey's butt, that you know, after Wolsey's downfall, he sees a way to maneuver um, Anne out of the picture once she becomes, you know, the, the queen and the liability and all that stuff. So, and it, it kind of comes across as like an avenging sort of a thing. In that way, the plot worked. I don't know if it's different in the book, but, you know, for those of you who read the book, weigh in on that. One other thought that I wanted to make, I am a big reader of historical fiction, and it's funny, watching this did really fire me back up about wanting to crawl back inside of Henry and Anne's brains. So I started kind of reading a couple of different things, and I did pick up uh, a historical fiction book and started reading it and then got annoyed because so many historical fiction books nowadays, I feel like these kinds of stories have been done to death, what they do is they invent some minor character, the lady-in-waiting, who watches Anne Boleyn's downfall. And I was reading this book that was, it wasn't, well, it was somebody, it was Mary Boleyn's daughter's, perspective on Anne Boleyn's downfall. And it was like, I don't give a fuck about Mary Boleyn's daughter. So I will say, 
for given that that has become a trope in historical fiction, better to choose someone like Thomas Cromwell, who is a real mover and shaker, than simply an observer uh, to reposition things through. But the flip side is, and this is a nitpick, and I have some stupid nitpicks. So the whole thing about the book and the point of this podcast, the whole thing with the book and with the TV adaptation is that it is wholly from Thomas Cromwell's perspective, except for one little scene where Anne Boleyn has her miscarriage, bleeds all over the floor, Jane oh, no, no, and somebody no. else spot it, yeah. and we see Anne looking all traumatized. And I get that that's a really cool thing to show, but it completely broke the only from Thomas Cromwell's perspective thing, and so I nitpick that. Okay, okay. question though. I have, a, I have a real fast question. Was that in the book? Um, I have no. no fucking idea. I just want to hear it. I want to hear what the people who read the book have to say. Ah, okay. fuck them. I got, I, I, that scene bothered me for both, it's not from Cromwell, Cromwell's point of view, and also, it goes back to the fucking Outlander thing, bleeding <laughs> on the floors, every, okay, I'm, this is gonna Wait, be- she was having a miscarriage, that sounds like a lot more dramatic. You have a mis- okay, now, um, you know, it sounds like a lot more dramatic than just having you a miscarriage. You haven't seen it, so you shush from it, alright. Alright, so, now, admittedly, I haven't had a miscarriage, those of you who have, Chime in. Sorry if it's traumatizing. We don't mean to be triggering. But from what I've heard from sad friends, who, anyway, it, it's it's like having when you have cramps and you have a when you're having it's like you know either from pregnancy or a period you start having cramps and there's some shit and you would go somewhere and do something you wouldn't just stand there in your full gown just bleeding on the fucking floor with these big giant. Splotches of blood on the floor, and there's no rushes to to absorb it. Kendra, ah. Kendra's picking up what Tristan's putting God, down right now. That scene <laughs> irritated me. Otherwise, I didn't have a problem with this show. But that scene, <laughs> that scene, I'm like, did Terry Dressbach come in and say, we need to do this scene like this. This is how you should do it. And, and then you're going to bleed and a big patch of blood here and a big patch of blood there and a big patch of blood here. And you're going to have to have Amelie going looking up going, ooh, so. All right. We're so done anyway, with that. I was uh, Tristan Cromwell. Cole. Yeah. So it's all from Cromwell's point of view except for that scene. And you know, I, I, I like that though. I mean there's there's <laughs> there's You just spent like five minutes saying how you didn't like that. No, I didn't like that scene. Um but what here's the thing why that's what that's good. I think actually Hilary Mantel is picking up on a on a, a trend and a few things in scholarship and like fictional or historical scholarship, not fictional scholarship, about rehabilitating Cromwell as a person. There's been a number of books and, and things about saying, was Cromwell a bad guy? Was he not a bad guy? Was he just, you know. So I think she was just picking up that and doing that, a fictional version of that. So my, my take is, honestly, there's no bad guys, honestly. I mean, other than Hitler, maybe. Um, but maybe. I mean, yeah. Okay. But the point is, <laughs> with a very select few instances in history, it's all people who are trying to look out for their own necks. So I can understand, you know, that that's, that's what this is going, you know, that's what this is going through. I mean, you know, who knows, 500 years from now they may try to rehab Hitler, but they'd be wrong. He was bad, right? Very bad. 
So what about the other characters? Henry, Anne? Anne! Uh, do you want to, Kendra, talk about Anne, and then I'll talk about Henry. No, talk about Henry first. All right. Henry, I liked, I liked the actor they had portraying Henry, who's named suddenly. Damien Lewis. Yes, Damien Lewis. He, he actually, he's tall, he's redheaded, he's deep of voice and broad of shoulder and very, very manly, and yet very, very, like, insecure and, holy crap, hold me, um, which I feel is pretty much... You know, that, that is what we now in the 21st century understand of Henry. Um, I feel it's pretty accurate. Uh, one other one thing that I thought was interesting when they were talking in, I believe it was the, I can't remember, the first or second episode, one of the early episodes where they're doing the archery and Henry is shooting and then, of course, Cromwell comes up and like, totally kicks Henry's ass on that. Um, I know, but it worked out okay for him. Sure. So, but the point is that they're they're doing target practice with the archery. Henry is shooting at a at a stationary target, um, but there's a conversation going on with Henry's pals, his little bro pals, um, about how. Uh, you know, he fell off a horse. He got stuck in the you know face with a lance on the joust, and and then he fell off his horse, and some guy rescued him, and he would have drowned otherwise, et cetera, et cetera. But it basically, if you don't really understand or you don't really know the history of Henry, now there's a question as to whether or not he had a traumatic brain injury, which caused. Don't laugh. It's serious business here. His personality altered from. Right around the time that Anne Boleyn was, you know, the whole Anne Boleyn thing was going on, and before then, it was it was a few years before then. But he he took a lot of falls, he took a lot of staves to the eyeball, and in his jousting and his athleticism. And they 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 are trying to they being the researchers who who have more authority on this. Uh, that they feel that this might have been his personality change, this despot from like you know the idealistic king that he was, the young king, to the despot that he became was because of a traumatic brain injury. So it was a nod to that. I felt like it was a nod to that kind of justification. I was just going to say yes, that is one thing that pe some people have explored, and I believe there was a book a couple of years ago that famously went into that. But there's also the camp. That that argues that it was life events that changed his personality. You know, the disappointment of not getting a son, his health failing, blah blah blah. I did want to come back around to the portrayal of Henry, and I mostly liked it. And in particular, what I liked is how they showed. It's kind of what you were saying, Sarah. They showed kind of. I can't think of the right word. I was thinking sort of his his naivete. But I'm thinking of the specific scene where he has the bad dream and he calls for Cromwell and Cromwell comes over and reinterprets the dream for him. Um, and I thought that that was such a perfect example of Henry's character that he was, you know, he, he did think of himself as a super conscientious moral guy. He did think God spoke to him, not like audibly, but he thought if I want something it's because God wants it. Um, and and the way that Cromwell was able to turn that dream around in a way that worked for Henry, it kind of showed what both what Cromwell needed to do to be able to work with Henry, and then, but also just sort of Henry's makeup that he wasn't, you know, the the turkey leg throwing guy of uh, whatever that 1920s 30s movie, uh, 1914 or whatever, something. Yeah, but oh, yeah. he was actually he actually believed a lot of this shit, and he was. I think, super self-absorbed, 
And so, yeah, he thought he should wake people up in the middle of the night to help him interpret a dream, and he did think that this was a, you know, earth-shattering, I had a dream about my brother and blah, 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 you know, all of that, thought so perfectly encapsulated the sort of little boy side and, and um, uh, trusting gullible, all those kinds of things. I, I do like, at least I like the look of Damien Lewis as this Henry. Um, I think he, he fits the part. Um, I think the way it's written and the way the, the, the plot is structured that Henry is really a, a secondary character, like, almost not quite a character, not, not quite a minor character, but he's, he's very much in the background. He kind of pops in and out, um, which is, it just really emphasizes further that Cromwell is the dude. Um, and, and it's really, it's all about Cromwell. But though there are some great moments where Henry's capriciousness are emphasized. How he can flip back and forth between an idea or a, a mood. Um, particularly once he marries Anne and Anne's uh, crowned. Uh, spoilers. Uh, he's he's like <laughs> too late for spoilers after you said it. Yeah. Well, you know, ooh, man's gonna be queen. <laughs> you know, he thinks she's pregnant, and 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 he says something like, you know, he tells it to Cromwell, we're you know we've got England, and England's our, and it's like everything's ours. Ooh, yeah, go team! And he, he literally says shit like that, and obviously, you know, it's Elizabeth. It's not. A, it's a girl. It's not a boy. And he's like, mm. and then, and then even back, even towards the end, where he suddenly decides, oh, Anne's guilty, uh, Anne's adulteress, and she slept with uh, hundreds of women. So men, men uh, hundreds of men. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the cocktail speaking. Um, so he's, he, and suddenly Tristan's I, projecting. And I and I and and Henry says, and I wrote this play about. He said he wrote this play. Last night, up, I was up late, and I wrote this about all the men she slept with, and I was, and I was, oh, because Henry is just like this capricious thing. He, he flips back and forth. He's like, this, I got this idea, and I got this idea. I want this, and I want this. I have to justify this, and I justify. Which, you know, if you think about, if you if you've actually, you know, read things about Henry VIII, you realize he's just a big spoiled baby. And and you go back and forth about all the things that he did. Kendra's like headbanging with thumbs it's up. Not that he got, maybe he did get knocked in the head, but I think even before, going back to you know how he even you know married Catherine of Aragon, um, that was just a suddenly, yeah, okay, I'm gonna do it. Woo, cool. Let me let so, me in. Let me just interject here. I go back to <laughs> one of one two things, two points. One is. In history, nobody is totally 100% bad. Two, Henry was a dude bro. Okay, a fucking dude bro, right? We're all good with this. Kendra's giving me a very skeptical look. And I think he was a two-year-old. I think he was a dude bro. A dude bro is, a, is an emotional two-year-old. Anyway, the okay. point is, point is the, guy, the guy never had anyone say no to him. Never had an, a lick of reality thrust upon him, and when when reality tried to kind of weasel its way into him, he had people surrounding him, assuaging him, petting him, saying, 
no, 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 no. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. You're totally amazing and wonderful. So it's one of those things. And Cromwell. And Cromwell does that. Does that. And, yeah. he, and Cromwell doesn't. But does, he does it for himself. He Cromwell doesn't flatter. He makes Henry see how he can get things. He's very sensible. Yeah, Cromwell he puts things in very like realistic, sensible terms. Yeah, like you would talk to a two-year-old if you were your two-year-old had an IQ of I don't know 120, and your and your two-year-old could have you beheaded. That too. It's that Twilight Zone video or uh, episode where the like eight-year-old boy can wish you into the cornfield. And if he wishes you into the cornfield, you're just dead. So the whole town is like, don't yeah. upset the eight-year-old. Yeah. Uh, that's so what, what it is. Anything more about Henry or should we move on? Let's move on. Let's move on to Anne and then we'll talk Anne. about Anne. Oh, I, I thought Claire Foy was great. Oh, I, thought, good. I liked her. I thought that she, I thought she was a very talented actress. Um, I thought that she had a good look for Anne Boleyn because she wasn't somebody you would look at and go, oh my god, that woman should be a supermodel. But she was also very attractive, very you know slim. She had the dark hair, blah de blah. I didn't really have any problems with Anne Boleyn. I, I, love how, I love how I kept referring to her as flat-chested in the very first <laughs> couple of episodes. It was it was interesting. I think they were trying to bring up the fact that you know she was not the pretty Boleyn sister. That Mary Mary was the pretty Boleyn sister. Um, I find actually in this in this entire adaptation and and the the show and I possibly even the book um, that that the one of the interesting things about it is that Anne Boleyn is not the interesting person in this. She's very transparent. She wants the throne. She's there sort of as a villain. Um, and yet and yet not completely evil. I do like the way that the that, that it's true, you know, she is treated in the sense that it's not a uh, it's not an open and shut case that she is a completely bad person, but she's definitely ambitious and she's definitely willing to step on whoever the hell she can to get to whatever the hell she wants. Um, okay, because I hated this ambulance. I fucking really? hated her. Okay, really? she, she looks fine. That's fine. And I liked that they had her speaking a lot of French because that's very appropriate. You know, she spent a lot of time. Uh, that was a little, <laughs> a little silly. She keeps but, uh, mispronouncing Cromwell. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, the French bit was... But, man, she was just like a one-dimensional bitch. She was just a tyrant. She was just... All, she's just laser focused on I'm gonna be queen and I'm gonna empower and that's oh my god. <laughs> well, it's because the story's not about her. No, I know, but she's got to be the villain. That's it. And uh, is it is this how Cromwell sees her? Is this the gist of it? Give me a minute. I'll give you a minute. Um, <laughs> Let me say I do think that that is you're seeing everybody through Cromwell's eyes. Okay. Except, and if we're gonna go. Historically accurately, they had a more complex relationship. Of course they did. And and this is this is just boiling it down to like the one note, almost the cliche of what everyone thinks Anne Boleyn was like. She was a crazy bitch. She just wanted to be queen. Bam! And she was. And then she needed to get rung up because she's crazy. 
Done. Did you ever read that novel? What was what was the uh, the book that was the feminist reinterpretation? Divorce beheaded. Yeah. Um, did you read it? Yet? Yes, I actually was reading that right as I was watching this on the. No play. wonder that makes and, sense. <laughs> but, but even before that, I'm just like comparing this Anne Boleyn to every other Anne Boleyn on screen. I'm thinking all of them have even even the ones with like tiny little blips of screen time have more dimension. This one was one dimensional. This was like, I'm a villain. I want to be queen. Meh. I want to be queen. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be queen. Eh. Okay. So I think that that points to one of the limitations. And again, not, I haven't read the book, so I don't know about that. But of the TV adaptation, it's not to say Cromwell isn't an interesting guy, but really, in all of this, and okay, granted, this is coming at it as a woman. Anne Boleyn is the most interesting character. So because we're seeing her, presumably, through Cromwell's eyes and we're seeing Cromwell's take on her character, it was relatively one-dimensional, and it was about kind of their sparring and his positioning and all of that. But I feel like it's a limitation because I would have much rather better understood Anne than better understood Cromwell. And my other sort of big complaint overall about the whole series is that I feel like they completely were unclear about why Cromwell and Anne stopped working together and you know and started working against each other. It was completely unclear in the TV adaptation. It was about the dissolution of the monasteries and the fact that Anne Boleyn wanted the proceeds to go uh, to charity and Cromwell and Henry wanted them to go to Henry's person. Yes to Henry's personal gain, Sarah's shaking her head at me. Whatever, that is what I have read is the commonly accepted historical interpretation, whatever. But either way, even if this series is not going to say that that's the problem, they, they never articulate, you never get an idea why they their relationship changes. It's totally unclear. Okay, so I have a couple of points. Number one, again, we go back to him being a free agent. We go back to Cromwell being a free agent. He is, he, he's, he's an opportunity to advance himself with, by courting or by working for the cause that Anne Boleyn is, you know, of course wrapped up in, which is to become queen married to, married to Henry. The second thing is that I kind of thought it was clear. I, I found in the book, or in the, in, the, in the show, that it was actually fairly clear that he, you guys... You haven't even watched those episodes. No, I'm, I'm just saying, watching the episodes that I have watched, I see where he's going with it. Ugh. It's I see clearly that he's like, he knows Anne is not long for the count. Oh, pfft. anyway, Anne is not long for the count. He realizes she's a temporary situation. He knows that he can maneuver another person in Anne's place because if Henry is so shallow as to take you know, whoever is thrust at him whenever there's a crisis, he can put that person in there. And that's the whole Jane Seymour angle. So I think it's completely obvious. From Based on the four and a half episodes that I've seen, I saw it coming a mile away. He was I, never on Team Anne. He was I never want to vote on whether or not that was clear. Because <laughs> I thought it was <laughs> unclear. Uh, chime in on Facebook and Twitter because y'all yeah, are foolish. Clearly, clearly we have a two to one here. Um, so you know we haven't really mentioned the costumes and uh, yeah, let's talk about costumes. People, 
kind of sure. listening to shit. Wait, wait, wait. Before we, before we talk about costumes, can I just weigh into the fact that, um, yeah, Mary Boleyn uh, oh, didn't do I, any of that. Anyway. No, and no. neither neither did neither did Cromwell's sister-in-law. No. But it's very nice to watch. I, I did enjoy I, that. I, I will take into okay, I think there's a framework, uh, at least, you know, in the in the novel, for hanging these hanging these bits on Mary Bolin. I, I think there's there's a there's a gonna be a post about this. Uh, because I think it was it was interesting. She was the only female character who I was actually like, oh, alright, there's something going on there. Because You didn't like you didn't like the sister in law Jane? Which uh, which one was she? Oh, the, like the five Janes that are in this. Yeah, I know. Um, it was it was his sister. It was the one she, the one that he had the affair with. Yeah. Yeah, she was nice, but she was like. Uh, she was nice. She, she was like, just there to bone. She was middle aged and she was having sex and it was awesome. I know. I, she had some really she had a nice outfit, which I want to talk about. Kind of. I want to just quickly run through my list of non costume related nitpicks. Okay. Okay. The yeah. dialogue rhythms were way too modern. The pace was a little too slow. I thought the crowd at the joust was way too small. Yeah. Or I was picturing like I was picturing an arena and there were like 20 people watching the joust whatever. But it was really cool how they showed Henry dying and then coming back cuz I've never seen that show that. Never shown well. Okay. I haven't seen this episode yet. Okay. Almost done. The Catherine of Aragon divorce proceedings Ooh, where somebody stands up and says, oh, Arthur said that he was in Spain last night, crickets, because she's Spanish, get it? Oh, now we get, because nobody would have fucking known she was Spanish. That is about Catherine having red hair, and then we see her, and she's a brunette. Jane what? Seymour being way more attractive than she should have been, and finally... Endless uses of the location name Wolf Hall when no other property is ever named. We endlessly, how are things at Wolf Hall? Yeah, we get that <laughs> that is where the fucking title comes from. You can stop saying, how are things at this random place we've never seen, and we're never going to mention the name of any other fucking property in this goddamn show. Thank That's you, not Doug. true. They talk about a couple of other ones. But they, say they at least reference Whitehall at least once. <laughs> no, I am down with you on, okay, the, the bringing Henry back to life. Okay, like, because Cromwell is, has super, you know, CPR. Like, what the fuck? Oh, I liked that. I thought that was lame. I No, I thought it was stupid. Okay, yes, um, there was an episode where Henry... Near was near death because of a joust, like a few days, and that supposedly caused Anne's one of Anne's miscarriages or her last miscarriage or whatever. Um, but seriously, Cromwell knows CPR. I'm in there. He didn't do CPR. Bullshit. Oh, the you haven't seen the episode? Right, I haven't. But he I don't. He does. There he does. He does not. He does. He punches him on the chest. Oh it's Jesus. So okay, that's funny. Wrong. It's so funny. They're all freaking out. The king is there. The king is there. And he comes in and he's like, oh, shit. Pound on his chest. Like, oh, my God. What is this? ER? Oh, like, Grey's fucking anatomy. I I mean, Jesus. Oh, God. Okay, so what were some of the other the other points? I agree with the rest there? of them. No, I disagree with some of the last ones that you had. You didn't like the Catherine of Aragon, redhead, no, Spanish, something in there. covered the whole goddamn time. A little bit. How no. They show her hair. 
Underwood. And it's And it was not. It is Joanne Whaley, and Joanne Whaley is totally a redhead. It was good. She's redheaded. That fast. She's Listen, like, if this were Willow with Val Kilmer, I'd be on board. What? I don't know. Point is that at least they reference the fact that she had red hair, which has been a major issue we've had since day one. Well, that's what I'm saying. And they even comment on the fact. Of her having red hair. Do you want her running around with her hair streaming free? Like, she has my number 30 hair. I just want them to take a little can of red hair spray paint, spray her roots right where they show, where the fucking gable hood shows a little bit of hair, and that's it. Okay, so I will say they gave Mary, Princess Mary, they did actually show her, like, super redheaded, which was awesome. Okay, great. Number two, uh, let's talk about fucking costumes because that's what the podcast is all about. For God's sake, let's, okay. I thought, I thought, okay. So when I was watching everything, and I am quote unquote the the Twitter expert in this little thing here, um, that that by and large, I would say they got about eighty five to ninety percent really well. I will not say a hundred percent right on or anything like that because nobody could ever be, but. The point is that they did actually far better than there's been in God knows how long, 40 years at least on film. Um, the the gable hoods were good. The French hoods, all over the place. But And yes, they were kind of headbandy, but they were not behind the ears. They were in front of the ears. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of transparent veil action going on. Uh, in certain circumstances, that would be accurate, but in all of the circumstances that they applied the transparent veils, black and white, too, not historically accurate headgear for that, but don't really care because the costumes were really, really good, and I like them. <laughs> Kendra. All right. I have one, two things. One is I would be interested in hearing Sarah talk about more about the gable hoods, because one thing I noticed was that some of them were really big and some of them weren't. And I wondered if that was a theatrical thing or did people really wear sort of different scale sizes of gable hoods? I don't think it's I don't think you can know that based on what portraiture and everything that you can see, um, visual reference, visual record, you can't really tell. Uh, how it, most of them are proportional to the face. And I will say, yeah, a couple of them looked a little aproportional, a little too large, but not to the extent where it was like, holy shit, your face is being swallowed by a birdhouse. You have not seen the last episode where it's seriously birdcage on the head, and it's like, oh, wow. Did, were these designed before they cast the actresses, or did they not, you know, there's... And I get it. You're, you know, shit goes on. It's complicated with costume and actors and fittings and shit. So I'm giving it that. I mean, it looks weird on screen because you're like, whoa, that thing's huge. You I know? didn't think it was that huge. You haven't seen it's the last episode. Okay. In particular, where um her jail Anne's jailer jailers, but her yeah. waiting ladies and waiting. Right. Um, what the, oh, God, Lady Norfolk or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's the, her, Rochford. Her, Rochford. No, it's not Rochford. It's, okay, it's um, the aunts and, and shit who are, are, are made to be her ladies-in-waiting, and they're wearing okay. these fucking insane gable heads, headdresses that are just so, like, out of proportion, and they've got, like, long, skinny necks, and it looks like... I mean, 
in a way it's kind of comedic because it makes them look, I don't know, more ridiculous and so you know, okay so I would know, say maybe it could be a theatrical thing as the tutor costuming expert here which shut up you bitches I'm talking um, I will have to say that from what I've seen in the four and a half episodes that I've watched so far there's been no major egregious you know transgressions costuming wise um, Kendra has an issue I know with the wrinkly the wrinkly bodices that are stomachers um, I'm inclined, I will get to you. <laughs> I, I got some issues. I will get to you too. The, the, I, let me just go on the record first as saying that I think what they were doing is, number one, I'm, I'm convinced that they had the Tudor Taylor, that they were going off of the Tudor Taylor. And awesome. That is really, really fucking great because the more people who are going off of Nanya Michaela and, and Jane Malcolm Davies' work, the better. Number two, though, is that I think I've said number two like a bunch of times. The point is that the um, the stomacher issue is that we knew that they had stiffening in them, and so you see a lot of the ladies around Andalan. You know, with ring, with with stiff bodices, whereas Andalan has less stiff bodices. Give me a second to finish. And I'm going to say I give them a pass on the fact that they have a slightly wrinklier bodice because I've never been able to get that look to look 100% stiff and straight in practical application versus what you see in the portraits. Kendra, for fuck's sake, go! Poor Sarah! Okay. Out. She, Sarah is very tense suddenly. This okay. Christina's petting her. She's going to be okay. What I wanted to say in respect to that specific issue is that Anne Boleyn has all these bodice wrinkles while no other female character does. And here's what I want you to know that I have found. I found an article, which I will link on the blog, that tells us, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting information that we should get into, but specifically, here we go. One costume fitting was all that was necessary for Mark Rylance, Thomas Cromwell, Damien Lewis, Henry VIII, and Claire Foy, Anne Boleyn. Their costumes were made to a set of measurements taken on trust, and the fabric was cut before the team had seen the actors. This meant several outfits had to be tried on and adjusted in one intense session. The costume team spent a whole day fitting Claire Foy, six hours fitting Mark Rylance, and four hours fitting Damien Lewis. So what happened, in my opinion, is... Exactly that. They got measurements, they made costumes, they went pretty far down, you only have so much fabric to mess with. Claire Foy went in and they went shit. And also, Claire Foy was pregnant. Minimally pregnant, but pregnant in this. So that would have changed things, she would have been changing during the, the fittings. And my guess is that they probably had more access to the supporting actresses for fitting purposes than they had to Claire Foy. Okay, and I want to I want to say one thing too. It's it's very noticeable. I think these things are all more noticeable because of the fabrics used. Anne's yes. dresses are almost entirely silk, taffeta or satin. Right, and and um, something like Mary Boleyn wears velvet. velvet. Um, a lot of the supporting um, oh, Roach Rochford uh, wears wool and why uh, Cromwell's um, wife and, and sister-in-law. Who is the, oh crap, I remember the name now. Um, one of the women that um, uh, Cromwell is interrogating, uh, she's wearing a velvet gown as well. And, and some of, one, oh, you mean like 
poll. Uh, oh, yeah, whether Exeter. Yeah, Exeter poll. Yeah, like Exeter. Uh, and in fact, yeah. in those velvet gowns, you can, if you look really closely, you can see what appears to be uh, boning, boning. Yeah. Uh, uh, channels. Right. And so the velvet gowns and things and the wool gowns are look very flat. Right. But it's the silk gowns where you see the the, the wrinkles, which we all, as customers, we all know, silk wrinkles like a mofo. And if you don't have the extra fittings... It looks definitely going to wrinkle like crazy. Two points. One is that the stomachers were, they definitely did the pinned on stomachers, which is why, you know, one of the tip-offs that they use Tudor Taylor as a reference for this. Um, the pinned on stomachers, you can actually get enough tension to mitigate some of the wrinkling when you stand perfectly still. You're going to get wrinkling no matter what when you're using silk or taffeta if you're not using boning or something incredibly stiff in, you know, as an inner lining in that, like, you know, plastic whatever. Um, but uh, in, in historical times, since we're going to talk a little bit about the historical times, the um, you know, they would have used pasteboard, which was glue, stiffened cardstock, essentially. They would have used buckram. We don't really know what the, the texture of the buckram that they would have used in this period is. We just know that they did use it. It may not have been at all like the buckram that we use to create hats these days, or the buckram that you can get in like baller, you know, ballet, um, stores, things like that, to create the, you know, the big tutus. Um, but we know these words came down to us, cardstock, um, buckram, there's, there's mentions in later than this period of, of reed stiffening, etc. Um, the fact that they didn't use any stiffening whatsoever, honestly, I give them a complete pass on that. I actually really like that in the fact that they didn't do any kind of, you know, obvious stiffening in, in Anne Boleyn's outfit. Um, I find, and as as somebody who wears you know the style and goes out and moves around in it, when you move, you get wrinkles. That's a fact of life when you wear clothing. And so when I look at the the amount of wrinkles that are showing up in Anne Boleyn's costumes, um, in her stomacher region and everything in her bodice region, and it's not on every costume. It's mostly in her her pink costume, and there was a previous the white one. The white one. Well, she's and pregnant. The, yeah, but still. Um, multiples. It's on pretty it's much all yellow. It's not as bad as I, I can name any one of the costumes that I've done, quote unquote, in historically accurate as possible style where there's wrinkles like that. So I give that a pass. Tris or Kendra, Kendra, go for it. I don't have a problem with the fact that they're wrinkled. It's the fact that Anne Boleyn's bodices are all wrinkled and nobody else's is. But I also wanted to just quickly throw in that the costume designer's name is Joanna Eatwell. She's been working for a very long time, but the big other thing you may know her from, which is really surprising, is The Paradise, which is the currently showing Victorian department store, clearly does not have a lot of budget for costumes or doing an okay job, but there's a few questionable things. I'm really surprised at the difference, and I think it's actually a good pointer to how you take a, you know, most costume designers probably could uh, or not most, but a lot of them could do super kick-ass historical accuracy if they were given the money and the support and all of that. Absolutely. That being said, everything I've read, they are using pins to close. Good. Everything. You They're can see using... the Wait, what? You can no. see the pins. You can. If you look closely. Yeah. You can see and I think... all over it makes me very happy. And I think that that's massive. I mean, they went to all the things I'm reading 
from the costume designer, and like I said, we'll link all of these articles, is they were going to how were these clothes actually made in the era and how were they worn, and they're doing that, which is amazing. So it's funny. Of course, we have to start with the bodice wrinkles, but I think that that's actually so minor. I agree, I, and that's exactly what I was kind of trying to get at. We spent a lot of time talking about them, so we may think that it's it's a major deal that we spent so much time talking about it. But to be completely honest, when you're watching the entire show, you will just you'll you'll be blown away. The level of costuming in the show is far none better than I've, anything I've seen in the last forty years worth. Of anything. Anything. Uh, you know, Six Wives of Henry VIII or Elizabeth R are about the only thing that can talk about. On that same level, and and you can talk about the boots. No, I'll get to it. Okay, but the point is that um, the wrinkling I actually really appreciated because I think it's a little bit more refreshing uh, than what we've seen in the past with all these like super stiff bodices that we you know were probably they're theatrical. They're they're theatrical. I think they were really trying to go for a more historically accurate uh, type of costume um, with Anne in particular. But I will say number one thing. I really want that yellow dress. <laughs> I really fucking want that yellow dress like so bad because it's beautiful and amazing and wonderful. And number two, that green, the green archery dress, we've seen stills of it come up. It's horrible. It is the one no, outfit in the entire no, show so far that I've seen. Apparently there's, there's at least two or three. And I want to say that that particular green dress, um, yeah, is terrible. Okay. But the point is about the green dress. Before anybody tries to like cut me off here, the point is about the green dress is that they actually work it into this to the entire dialogue, where she's obviously portraying quote unquote Maid Marian, and because Cromwell says at one point, "Where's Robin Hood?" So you know that she's probably dressing it up to be all like, "Custody, custody, custody." Okay, everybody else is dying. Tristan's slipping me off. Kendra's having a heart attack. Okay, so let's start with there. So, well, yes, I would give it like 75%, maybe 80% awesome fucking costumes because super, and, and I did stare at things like very super closely because I was watching on a plane and I was bored. The, there's two archery scenes. Um, one has the green dress. By the way, the fucking snood she's wearing is recycled from the Tudors. Oh, now no. that Yeah, bitches. I came up on Recycled Costumes Tumblr um, about a week ago. I will, we will link it. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. Uh, it's not that good. Um, that whole outfit is just like shit. And there's another outfit, again, a, another archery hunting scene where she's wearing this kind of medievaloid fantasy, I'm at an SCA event bullshit outfit. Um, it's just like, why? Because why? she lives in a fantasy world! Okay, we all do, but whatever. <laughs> um, so, again, I'm just going to catalog some of my <laughs> problems. With I love, okay, yeah, again, everything's great. but uh, these Everything are, is great, but, but all of the shit that's wrong. Let me wrong. just get out the things that are wrong. I'm just going to say, let's do that, and then let's talk about what's good, because this, it, this blows away everything else. It's really good. 
But, okay, so those shitty outfits that Anne wears, like, hunting in archery because it's like, ooh, we go... Two outfits! We two! But they're really bad. They are pretty bad. They're really bad outfits. And we recycle something from the tutors in this. Come on. It's really random given the incredibly high, incredibly high level of quality of everything else. It almost makes me think that they, they ran out of something. And actually, that is one other factoid. Apparently, they had a fire in their trailer of women's costumes at one point. And I don't think that anything crucial was destroyed, um, but... Maybe uh, they money because of that? I wonder if literally, like, the shit they had ready to go burned up and they were like, fuck, we have to grab this fucking thing from the local high school theater and throw it on us. A.K.A. the tutors. <laughs> okay, so the other thing is, I do have a big fat problem with the French hoods. And they're in front of the ears at least. Oh, so but they're fucking on. headbands. They are. Lady Rochford is the worst. It's really, it's just a fucking crescent with some really bad, the, the apple, the... I will the, give you that much. Lady Rochford is the shitty. worst. It's yeah. really the worst. But Mary, Mary Boleyn's too is really shitty. And and the and the and the, the the sheer veils on like half the ladies at court. I was trying to figure out. Oh, it was more than that. Well, I was trying to figure out: is there a rhyme or reason about certain ladies have sheer ones because they're at court and they're part of Anne's retinue? No, it's just random. I think like we we ran out of velvet. We didn't have enough money no, for velvet. Or I really think it it was the I was paying attention because I noticed the Back use. I noticed the use of the organza veils. Yeah. Um, Pretty early on in the show with the women, I was I was starting to notice that I think it's it's more the incidents when you see them in from behind, and I think they were trying to make and I'm I'm gonna defend the costumer's choice on this, the fact that when you see an actress from behind, you want something that doesn't obscure them. I really think that's when they started throwing in the 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 transparent veils. So anytime and you notice this. Trust, I just watched it today. Anytime I watched an actress, it four days ago. Whatever, but my memory is more fresh. But yes. whenever an actress turns her back to the, the camera, you notice there's a transparent veil there. And I think it's because they don't want to obscure the actress. That's my theory. So I could completely be full of shit. Hey, hey, guess what, everybody? Sarah could be full of shit. And the point being, this is a very theatrical issue it's not historical it's just bullshit um and and yeah uh kendra a minute go go i still have more shit to go 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 kendra, just go. one quick thing as the resident hair uh nazi i loved the fact that i could see through the transparent veils that they had their hair done in yes no in styles in whatever so because i'm not enough of an expert to know I should be annoyed by the transparent veils, I was excited to see styled hair that wasn't hanging hair or a hanging braid or a fucking ponytail. But it was Thank you. But it was merely parted and done. It was no, like, it was braids. It was braids. It was bullshit. Bullshit. Anyway, we we agree to disagree on that. I I I really the 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 sheer veils thing just pissed me off. Um, also, let's let's move on to the shoes. Okay, the boots. All the men, except for exactly two of them, were wearing boots. They were all pussies. So yes, exactly. That's it. So all the men were wearing boots, and as we've discussed, even Cromwell. 
Cromwell's, and as we discussed, um, the only reason a 16th century man should be wearing boots is this if he's riding somewhere. Hunting. Hunting, riding, he's about to jump on a horse. Not just hanging around. There are scenes where the, the musicians, Smeaton, who's a pansy little dude, who's like just hanging around there with his lute, is wearing boots. There's a trio, there's one scene, there's a trio of three musicians hanging around there. La -da -da, and they're all wearing boots. There's no reason for that. There are two men who wear actual shoes, 16th century shoes. You can get them all. Just chill, chill. The other gals are like Jones and talk here, but I'm, I'm going on my read. But <laughs> there are two men who wear shoes, and you actually see them wearing shoes. One is Thomas More in his um, trial. Uh, oh, spoilers. He doesn't live. Sorry. And I'll get to the, actually. I'm, I'm really. I don't like the treatment of Thomas Thomas More. This is not my best time. It's not Thomas his Moore. movie. I know it's not his. I, he I, had plenty of movies. I like a man for all seasons. You'll see that on the on the website. Yeah. Uh, tune in later. Um, he wears shoes because apparently he's a pansy. He's a loser. He's gonna be. He's an old man. He's an old man. and gets his head chopped off. And speaking of heads chopped off, yeah. Spoiler: the executioner. To, wears shoes as well. The reason they all wear boots is because everybody shits on the floors. Oh! And if they wear shoes, they get shit all over themselves. So they have to wear big boots because they're walking through human manure. A consultant here. Let's not be mean. Uh, okay, we're not here to make friends. Point is, though, this is not her podcast, all right? We'll get back to her when Outlander re-premieres. Which is the same weekend, by the way. This weekend. But I will say, I got the feeling, you have a point with the musicians. There is no excuse for the musicians. I got the feeling, though, that all of the guys, even possibly Cromwell, but yeah, all of the men in this show were at any second going to just go gallop off to... Joust or to hunt or to whatever, and okay, it's a stretch. Point is, it's a stretch. But uh, but they do they do make a lot about the fact that uh, that Henry was incredibly athletic and incredibly capricious and, and just absolutely taken to dropping everything and going out for hunt. And so everybody had to have boots on to be ready at any second. I don't know. That's my justification. I'm on team costume designer. I'm on the record team costume designer. Every major portrait, every full length portrait we have of Henry shows him in lots of lots of. Of, of stocking and shoe and the cowbell shoes, but I will say, nope. I will say, out of what we've been doing this for, how many years? Seven years now. The only, the only time I've ever gone on the record of team costume designer is in this show. I am on your team costume designer. This show, right here. This one. Oh, you know, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking. Oh, I know you are picking. It's like crazy. I am. Kendra, you have something to say. I just wanted to share another little quote that might get us onto the track of things we did like. Oh, yeah. uh, another well, quote from the costume designer, which she talks about. She says, we also employed a tactic that the Globe Theater uses called original practice. We worked out how the clothes would have been made at the time. Accordingly, the costumes we used had all the correct fastenings. There were no zips. The tutors were masters of invention. Clothes were handmade and held together mainly by pins and points or ties. 
Now, granted, it's a sad state of affairs when we have to be excited that there aren't zippers. And yet, again, I want to come back to there's so much that's good in this. For me, one of my biggest moments, I loved Anne Boleyn's coronation outfit. But yes. also, the biggest one for me was, I think it was the first time Cromwell shows up at court and you see Henry. And again, it was it was one of the best moments I've seen where I really got the impact of the bulky Tudor men's clothing. Henry just looked so great. I want to say he was wearing orange satin. I'm not positive. I just remember massive sleeves, massive Henry, and that visual impact was so cool. It was amazing. I love the men's clothing. Fabulous here. men's costume. Anyway. Oh, Fabulous. they were so good. Well, I can nitpick the women's. The men's are just like, other than the shoes, oh my god, they were so fabulous because they had all the layers, they had the points, and then this, this, this. Oh, the points. But they had the bulk, and they had the fur. The, okay, even with the women's, too, actually. Um, the use of fur in this production was astounding. Thumbs up all around Thumbs here. Thumbs up all around for the fur. So um, we mentioned the, the chick who, um, uh, Cromwell Stubbs. Uh, you mean the sister-in-law? The sister-in-law, yeah. Jane. Um, she had this beautiful, ass. like, loose gown with jet edged fur, which made it look like it was, like, lined. I didn't like that one. I actually didn't like that one. Right. I thought it looked like upholstery material. Yeah, but, but it was the, nice. The fur lining or her trim made it, it was so period. It looked so accurate to me. And all, and all the men had these huge fur collars, and there's, like, fur everywhere, like, his because, you know, it was cold back then, bitches. I mean, they call it a little oh ice age for a little ice and, and, it was just, and the men looked so good. Okay, so I will say, uh, again, as the resident Tudor costuming, quote-unquote expert, which, you know, is hysterical, but amongst these two, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> the point is... <laughs> hey, I could, uh, I could take it. What, no. Eight, 1580s, maybe. Yeah, okay. I got you on the 1530s, 1540s, uh, 50s. Anyway, point is that um, I thought the men's costuming was incredibly beautiful. They, they spent a lot of effort, lots of wool, lots of fur, lots of velvet, as Tristan just already said. Um, there were a handful of things that I was like, yeah, not so much. But by and large, the things that I really, really liked about the women's costuming was um, the... You, you see the not Anne Boleyn characters and not her lady-in-waiting characters. Any other woman that shows up who is not those two has fantastic clothing. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think, you know, okay, so I've been in the SCA long enough to say that I remember when Braveheart was a massive trend and everybody wanted to be Scottish and it was like, you know, free to talk about Braveheart. Shut up, I'm talking here. No. Point is that... You know, it is a fact. It is a fact that that pop culture and movies and TV shows influence trends in the reenactment community. And I will go on the record as saying, if that anyone and everyone who watches Wolf Hall gets inspired about Tudor history and looks at this for like Tudor clothing and comes to an SCA event wearing something that they were like inspired by by the film, then I'm like, my work here is done. And that was like you. I will personally hump your leg. And, we, and I will lick you. And I just wanted to say that I am so excited about how much positive press this show has gotten based on the authenticity factor. And I'm really hoping that this will be a positive uh, influence in Hollywood to maybe do some more uh, productions where they're actually aiming for authenticity. 
Again, I, I think it's an interesting conundrum, given that I think elements of the story were so, at least interpretation-wise, so not quite historically accurate, whatever. But the point is, the production value is amazing. Apparently, they spent like a gazillion pounds on candles and developed new ways to film in low light and all that stuff. But I just pray that other people say, hey, Wolf Hall got a ton of good press and viewership based on authenticity. And I think that it proves what we argue here, which is that part of the reason people like history is because they actually want to see what it actually looked like, not just your made-up medieval fairy elf gown. They actually want to see what the fuck did Henry VIII look like and what was his world like. So let's have more productions like that because there's a market for it. I really think that, you know, if you have anything else to add, but I really well, think that's a great note to end on. Well, I, I do have the fear, yeah. though, that the, the first couple episodes are slow, yeah. and they are hard to get into. Really? I was gripped. Well, I was gripped by well, the lapels. I, I, even, I even read this in the, in, the, in the UK press, that they were slow, and it took a little while for it to build an audience. There was a big, ooh, it's coming, and then it was like, boom, boom, boom. As far as like up and down on the on the um, uh, you know audiences, so Actually, I, I feel lost. like U.S. audience will be will have a, a harder time with it. Really? That that's the frustrating thing. Apparently, the viewership went down significantly after like the second episode, and yeah. I will say it did because again. Henry and Anne are the interesting people. You don't get much of them in the first two episodes, and I felt like that was that detracted from things. If I didn't particularly care about watching this, I might have been dissuaded. I can see how that would happen. And, yeah, I am worried that people will say, oh, we threw too much money at this. People don't actually care about authenticity. It's too snoozy. We need to go back to the tutors because I feel like, again, I think it's the authenticity things that are what make this production so amazing and that there might be some issues with story and pacing and those kinds of things that cause things like people dropping off and watching it. My hope is that um, PBS has been, um, their, their promo has been um, Henry and... Cromwell saying, you know, I, 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 I have you for what's what's complicated. It, that line about um, uh, it's not for what easy, what's easy, but what what's complicated. It's it's all about the machinations, and not about the Henry and Anne thing. So they've been promoting that. They promoted that a lot during Downton Abbey. So I my my hope is that that's what's going to hook. American audiences. I think I think that one of the benefits of this coming out later than the the UK uh, premiere is that we do get to see how it was promoted in the UK versus now they're not going to do the same thing for the US audience. Um, that's good to know about the P, or about the PBS uh, promotions of this with you know the the interactions between Cromwell and Henry versus the interactions you know the love story or the right. whatever that's going on between Anne and Anne or Anne and Henry. The point is that I was going to make finally is that honestly, this entire show, as much as I've seen it, and I still have an episode and a half left to go, um, is that the this would be the show that a you know people like us would want to make, <laughs> and and 
you know, and I, I do admit we are not a large demographic. We are not a huge money-throwing demographic like the gray unwashed masses who just want to see Henry and Ann Bone. But I really do want this to stand, and I, I'm hoping it's successful in the states at least, or you know, in, in the long run that it kind of has like a little cult status to it that it builds up over, over the next you know, decade or so, that this is something that we can all look to as, as a really good example of costuming history and entertainment that's all been wedded together. So I'm going on the record as saying, number one, team, team costumer, number two, team scriptwriter, number three, team author. And I think, you know, if, if more productions were made like this, we wouldn't have a reason to podcast. <laughs> Although we could nitpick to death. We should sure. nitpick to death. Oh, there's but, always You know, but this is, this is really one of those things that uh, I'm incredibly gratified to see put to film. And I will say that where the story ends, it's obvious they have to make um, part two. Um, this is six episodes, and um, there are... Uh, Hilary Mantel has written two books, um, Wolf Paul and Bringing Up the Bodies. She's going to write a third that completes Thomas Cromwell's life. Um, and where the story ends, you'll see that there needs to be more. Um, we have it. I, I couldn't find, and maybe, I don't know, Kendra has found anything about uh, if there's a, a new second production, second series in the works yet. But The second book hasn't come out yet. Well, no, third book. Third, third book. book. Third, excuse me, third book. I have heard there's certainly been mentions of the strong possibility. Um, I'm sure it will depend on how much money comes in, how long it takes for the third book to come American out. American audiences, watch the shit out of this. Did this one actually include Bring Up the Bodies? I couldn't yeah, tell from where yeah. it did. It did? Okay, it did. Oh. okay. So, okay, so basically, so since the third book hasn't come out yet, um, it's, it's, I guess it's going to be a few years then, which, I don't know, that kind of sucks because everyone's going to age. Anyway, whatever. Um, you can tell there's a, there's a, there's another, it's a cliffhanger! Eh, I mean, uh, you know, shit happens history-wise, whatever. Anyway, it's a cliffhanger. So it's you, like the historical Game of Thrones. You, you want more to happen. You want to see more to happen. If, if you watch this and you don't want more to happen, I mean, who are you? What's the problem? You suck. Why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah. Go away. So one other thought, too, though, is, again, back to I hope that this inspires more stuff. I mean, it certainly inspired me to want to go back and reread Yet again, the books on my bookshelf about Anne Boleyn um, and Henry, and they are—they continue to be such fascinating characters, and and it makes me hope. I mean, I think that the the tutors are constantly there's constantly media coming out about them, but again, it makes me hope for more quality media coming out about them. I think it proves that there continues to be a market for this stuff, and that again, a big part of what we're interested in is not seeing Jonathan Rhys Meyers stoop whatever random actress, it's figuring out what was going on inside these people's head. So Hollywood, more serious Tudor stuff, not serious like boring, but serious like taking it seriously. Make it Tudor comedy, but take it seriously. I do say, I will say that I laughed out loud in portions of this uh, of these episodes. I thought they were incredibly funny in certain episodes. Cromwell is, has a dry wit that's given to him, which I think is wonderful. 
Um, so it's it's not just like you know drama. It's it's humor and insight and pathos and emotion and all sorts of wonderful things that are wrapped up in and and it's just so good and I want it to succeed so bad. So I, I think we're all saying you'll like it if you haven't watched the whole thing yet, if you're listening to this just literally right after the first episode. Um, there's a lot of great costuming. We've nitpicked because we care. <laughs> um, but we really love the costuming. God, things need to be this good in costuming so we can nitpick this tiny of things. And um, it's great. So keep watching. Um, if you have already watched the whole thing, you know, yay, go you. All of our English friends. Yes. Our UK friends. Right. And, um, you know, when, and, and, and definitely as you're watching uh, the UK, US people, as you're watching, comment on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're at Frockflix on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and on the blog, of course, frockflix.com. We'll have more resources put up in the next couple of days. Definitely. And we'll have a blog post related to these, these uh, topics, you know, Henry and Anne and Cromwell and stuff. Um, so, you know, join in the conversation. We really appreciate um, that. And yeah, damn, there needs to be more, more, more stuff like this. Please. All right. All right. So that's it for this one. Bye.